Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Rosicrucian Practice by Rudolf Steiner. June 28, 1907, Castle. My task today and tomorrow will be to describe the path to higher worlds that is best suited to our present circumstances. This path has been fostered in so-called esoteric schools since the 14th and 15th centuries. For a better understanding of what this path involves, let us consider first the future evolution of the human being. We have already talked about human evolution during the Saturn, Sun, Moon, and Earth stages of the Earth's development. People who think only in terms of the present have difficulty imagining how anyone can possibly know anything about the future. First of all, you must realize that certain great laws will continue to work in the future just as they work in the present. Anyone familiar with these laws can see into the future. In the field of material reality, no one doubts that the timing of solar and lunar eclipses or of other configurations of heavenly bodies can be calculated far into the future, and everyone knows that scientists can predict what will happen when specific substances are mixed in a test tube. This type of prediction, which refers to material, sense-perceptible facts, is possible because we know the laws governing the actions of matter. Similarly, in occult science, we learn the laws that govern human life and can therefore know what will happen in the future. At this point, admittedly, an objection may come up that has been raised by philosophers throughout the ages, namely that if we can predict what will happen in the future, there can be no talk of human freedom. People who raise this argument, however, are confusing prediction with predetermination. With the single exception of Jakob Böhme, philosophers have been unable to make this distinction, so you find all kinds of strange claims in their works. Here is an example that will help clarify the situation. Let me use space as an analogy for time. Imagine that two people are standing outside on the street, and that you are standing inside observing them from a distance. Does that mean, then, that you determine what they do? No. You simply observe what they are doing, while they act in complete freedom. The fact that you see them in no way determines what they do. Similarly, when clairvoyants see what happens in the future, they simply observe future events without influencing them in any way. If these events were predetermined or predestined by the present, clairvoyant vision would not be simply a matter of seeing into the future. This distinction becomes clear only after we have spent a long time pondering the difference between predetermination and prediction. My intention today is not to describe the Earth's outward appearance during the future Jupiter and Venus stages of Earth evolution, but to sketch the future of human evolution. Let me describe a teaching that originated in the oldest Christian mysteries, in the school of the true Dionysius and has always been expounded in Christian esoteric schools. The presentation of this teaching always began somewhat as follows, quote, As I speak to you, you hear my words, thus you hear my thoughts, which existed initially in my soul, and which I could conceal from you if I did not transform them into words. 
I transform these thoughts into sounds. If there were no air between you and me, you would not hear my words. But as soon as I begin speaking, the air in this space moves. Each time I say a word, I induce a specific state of vibration in this space. The whole body of air vibrates in ways that correspond to how my words are pronounced. Let us now take this thought further. Imagine that we can transform air into a liquid and then into a solid. Already today it is possible to solidify air. You know that steam, the gaseous form of water, liquefies when it cools and is transformed into solid ice when it freezes. Now imagine that I pronounce the word God in air-filled space. If you could solidify the air at the very instant these sound waves are present, a shape, perhaps a shell-like shape, for example, would fall to earth. The word world would produce a different shape. You would be able to capture my words, and each word would correspond to a shape made out of crystallized air. This analogy was used in the Christian schools. Each object first exists as a thought concealed within a being, a thought that is then spoken and solidified. Christians imagine that the creation of the universe began with thoughts of things, which were then pronounced by the divinity and sent forth into space. The plants and minerals you see are divine words that have solidified. You can imagine that they were once dissolved in the sound vibrations of the divine cosmic world. Each thing we see, so said the early Christians, is a divine world become solid. Therefore, they distinguished between the Father, who remains hidden and has not yet expressed himself, the Son, or Word, that resounds through space, and the solidified Word, or Revelation. In this way, we can understand the deeper meaning of the Gospel of, according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and a God was the Word. The Word was with God at the beginning, and through it all things came to be. No single thing was created without it. Everything that came into existence emerged from the Word. When we take these statements as literally as possible, it is easy to understand the creative power of the Word, or Logos. Logos must not be translated as anything except Word, because this passage means that the unspoken creative Word underlies all external creation. The resounding Word is the source of everything that exists. If we went back through the ages, we would hear all the objects and beings we now know as animals, plants, minerals, and humans resounding through cosmic space, just as you hear my words today, because the air had not yet cooled enough for them to precipitate as solid forms. If you bear all this in mind, you realize that the word was once a creative force. Today, we human beings are still mere beginners at what our forefathers once did. These superior divine beings once pronounced words and sent them out into space, and their creative activity became the creation that surrounds us. Today's sexual procreation, whether by plants, animals, or humans, is simply a transformation of the divine creative word of former times. Human beings include a higher and a lower nature. Our most nearly finished aspect is sexuality, while the beginning 
of a new means of procreation exists in the human larynx. Sending forth words is a first token of what we will later be able to produce. We are in the earliest stages of what the gods once did. In the future, the old means of procreating will be replaced. The larynx we now use to produce words will become an organ of procreation that brings forth increasingly denser and more exalted creations. In the future, what is now air will be the substance of beings. When the earth will be transformed and enter into the Jupiter stage, the human word will be creative in the mineral realm. During the Venus stage, the human larynx will bring forth plants and so on, until it can reproduce its own kind. Our larynx acquired the form we know today when it was first possible to expel air from the lungs in the form of sound. In future evolutionary stages of the earth, what we can now only say will emerge in forms that endure. Ultimately, the larynx will become the organ through which human beings chastely reproduce their own kind without resorting to sexuality. We will transform the larynx into an organ of procreation. Thus, we recognize the potential of our larynx when we see into the future. The mysterious phenomenon of the breaking voice in adolescent males suggests that the activity of the larynx is indeed related to specific developmental changes. The larynx is at the beginning of its evolution while sexuality is at its end. This is one of the subtle interrelationships typical of natural phenomena. Sexual activity is declining, and in the future, the word, the larynx, will become our reproductive organs. Much more could be said about such organs, which we have incorporated into our respiratory system here on Earth, but which actually belong to the heart system. They are present in the body as mere potentials now, but will gradually evolve further. We will now see how the esoteric Rosicrucian training that was introduced in Europe during the 14th century anticipates future stages of human evolution and accelerates our inner development in comparison to its natural rate of evolution. Rosicrucian training, although it has a bad reputation among those who have heard about it only in passing, is the method best suited to modern human beings. If what scholars know about from books were true, Rosicrucianism would be nothing more than the fraud it is reputed to be. Today, however, we will consider the real Rosicrucianism, which came about through the individuality concealed behind the name Christian Rosenkreutz, who provided the impetus for the founding of the Rosicrucian movement in 1459. I wish to state explicitly at this point that everything I say today on this subject will consist only of selected examples. Having said this, let me immediately present the seven main steps in Rosicrucian training. These steps apply to everyone undertaking such training, although not all individuals take them in the order listed. The first step is what we call study. Acquiring imaginative cognition is the second step. The third is learning to read the occult or esoteric script. The fourth is preparing the philosopher's stone. The fifth is called the correspondence between the microcosm, or little world, and the macrocosm, or greater world. 
The sixth is finding our way into the macrocosm. The seventh, beatitude. While the Rosicrucian path is the safest, most profound way to understand Christianity, the Christian path is more suitable for steadfast believers who can mobilize the inner feelings I described in presenting this path yesterday. The Rosicrucian path, on the other hand, is for people capable of forging a union between Christian truths and the truths of the outer world, thus making Christianity impervious to any attack from the outside. No matter how wise we are, we can never understand Christianity adequately. No level of understanding is advanced enough to allow us to completely grasp the significance of Christianity for the wisest of the wise, but the Rosicrucian path is still the most suitable path for modern individuals. We study in the Rosicrucian sense when we have thoughts that no longer have anything to do with the world of our senses. The Western world is familiar with thinking free thoughts only in geometry. Gnostic Christian schools gave the name Mathesis to thoughts related to higher truths, to God, and to the higher worlds, because such insight, like mathematical understanding, must be acquired independently of any sense perceptions. A circle drawn with chalk is highly imperfect. A true circle is possible only in thought, and everything you learn about a circle exists only in your thoughts. In mathematics, we learn to think without depending on sense perception about the circle we construct in our thoughts and about the mental triangle whose angles add up to 180 degrees. It is somewhat uncomfortable to learn to think without reference to material, sense-perceptible objects, and for most people, theosophy is the only field of study that requires such thinking. Adding machines, which teach people to think in ways that are not sense-free, were invented only in our materialistic age, because it is important for children to learn about mathematical subjects without reference to sensory perception the influence of occult science on education will be tremendously valuable. Spiritual science is also a good training in sense-free thinking. You cannot see what I told you about Saturn and the Sun or about the members of the human constitution. Such objects can be understood only through sense-free thinking, but no one should believe that any self-training is possible in this field without first understanding the contents on a theoretical level. It is fortunate that these contents simply do not exist as far as sense perception is concerned, because this forces us to think in ways that transcend sense perception. For this purpose, it is enough for some people to expose themselves to what theosophy has to say about ideas that we cannot grasp with our senses. These ideas are essentially the same as the thoughts presented in Rosicrucian schools, and there too it was important for people to learn them. When you are ready to go further, good ways of learning pure thinking can be found in my books Truth and Knowledge and Intuitive Thinking as a Spiritual Path. These books exercise our sense-free thinking. In any other book, shifting the position of one thought generally does not alter the meaning significantly. The thoughts in these two books, however, cannot be moved around. When I wrote these books, my personality simply presented the opportunity for their inherent thought structure to appear in the sense-perceptible world. Such thoughts create themselves and the links among them, and we must accept their inherent order. 
delving into the subject in depth may take six months and is by no means an easy, but it is well worth the effort. When you read one of these books to the end, a force is realized that formerly lay hidden within you. The second step toward Rosicrucian initiation is imagination, or symbolic cognition, typified by Goethe's saying, everything transitory is but a symbol. Actually, only those who have achieved certainty in their thinking should attempt this stage, for without this certainty, it is easy to succumb to figments of the imagination. Achieving clear-headedness is a prerequisite to attempting this step, because unclear thinking or faulty logic encourages errors while clear thinking prevents them. In the broadest sense, imagination could be described as seeing what we see in human beings in everything else we look at. When you see lines form and disappear on a human face, you do not simply describe the shapes they make, you call them smiles or frowns. We do not simply draw conclusions about a person's inner life from external appearances. The externalities are direct signs of inner activity. A human smile reveals a cheerful mood of soul, and when you see tears welling up, instead of simply observing that tears obey the laws of gravity, as a physicist might do, you know that they express the sadness in a person's soul. Every outer manifestation expresses an inner soul mood. For those undergoing a Rosicrucian training, everything they see in the outer world becomes an expression of the spirit of the earth, so to speak. A plant such as the autumn crocus expresses the sorrow of earthly existence, while other plants express its joy. Just as a smiling face reveals a cheerful soul mood, flowers reveal the sad or cheerful mood of the earth. Goethe does not intend it as a superficial image when he says, as the earth spirit, I create a living garment for the divine. To students of Rosicrucianism, the earth spirit gradually comes to mean everything that is alive in the earth. The Rosicrucians develop a soul-spiritual relationship to their natural environment. Let me illustrate one particular mood of this natural environment. Imagine Rosicrucians in training, walking over the meadows and seeing the tiny pearl-like drops of dew hanging from all the plants. The droplets recall ancient Nebelheim, literally mist home, Niflheim of Norse mythology, where the air was filled with dew and fog and human beings related to nature very differently from today. Walking over the dewy meadows recalls the saturated atmosphere of Nebelheim, and a deep-seated memory of Atlantean times rises up in the students. Imagination was highly developed among the students of medieval Rosicrucian schools and the schools of the Holy Grail. Let me restate some of their instruction for you. The teacher said, Consider how the plant emerges from the ground and how its calyx which contains the organs of reproduction, opens upward. See how the sun's rays descend, allowing the blossom to open and the fruit to ripen. Students of Rosicrucianism or of the Holy Grail were required to call this idea or image to mind. Even materialistic science compares plants to humans. When we do so, however, we must compare the plant's root to the human head and the flower to the human organs of reproduction, which we hide in shame. The human being is an inverted plant. 
while the animal is a semi-inverted plant. That is why the Rosicrucians told their students to look at the plant, with its roots in the ground and its organs of reproduction stretched chastely toward the sun. At the animal, with its horizontal backbone, and at the completed transformation in the human being. The evolutionary journey from plant to animal to human is symbolized by the cross. The cross is plant plus animal plus human being. Now we understand what Plato meant when he said that the world soul is bound to the cross of the earth. The all-pervading world soul is bound to the plant, the animal, and the human being. Next, the teacher said to the students of Rosicrucianism, Look at the plant. Although it exists on a lower level than you, in that it does not possess consciousness and thinking, its substance is pure and chaste. It lifts its calyx to the sun, free of desire and lust. It raises its organ of reproduction to the sun's rays, to the holy lance of love. Today, matter is imbued with desire, but imagine as the ideal for the future that matter will be purified again and produced purely and chastely. Rosicrucian teachers pointed to the larynx as the organ through which human beings will again achieve the purity and chastity of a plant's calyx. They said, imagine the calyx of a plant which is still free of desire. In the higher kingdoms of nature, procreation passes through the evolutionary stage of desire but it will become pure and chaste once again by allowing itself to be fructified by the sun's rays transformed into spirit by the holy lance of love. The lance that pierced the heart of Christ Jesus on the cross presages this holy lance of love. Yesterday we heard that the blood from the Redeemer's wound banished egoism from the earth. Thus the lance presages the higher lance of the sun's rays transformed into spirit, and the holy grail points to the calyx or chalice of humankind, which will evolve out of the larynx in the future to become a purified organ of reproduction such as plants have now. This deeper meaning of the holy grail was made clear to the students of Rosicrucianism, the holy grail on the level of imagination. To see the difference between imagination, whose images encompass entire cosmic processes, and mere rational thinking, compare these images. Plant calyx, sexuality steeped in desire, the holy grail, the chalice free of desire, to the dry, rational concepts provided by modern science. It is important to realize, as people in ancient times understood, that merely rational concepts such as we have today are not creative unless they are supplemented with such images. This fact must also be considered in educating children. Let me give a timely example. It is so easy for us to laugh at earlier generations for teaching us the silly story of the stork. Today we think we have to tell children the facts of the matter, but what if our descendants treat us the way we treat our ancestors? They will laugh to think that we believed human beings came into existence through the interaction of material substances. They will look back to a time when people explained the underlying spiritual process to children. In ancient times, when the story of the stork first appeared, the adults who told it believed it. They knew very well that at a birth the person's soul descend from the spiritual world and they always associated this descent with a winged creature. You can still find this truth in children's songs. For example, 
Fly, ladybug, fly, your father's gone to war, your mother's gone to Pomeland, Pomeland is burning down, fly, ladybug, fly. Flying symbolizes the human soul, because in those days, people had premonitions of flying bodies that enter the physical world from astral space. And what is Pomeland? Poma is the same as Pomel, a little baby, and Pomerland or Pomerland, is where a mother goes to get a child. We must simply interpret the entire song in terms of the spiritual world. When you recall that the stork that brings babies is actually a symbol of the spiritual process of reincarnation, you will realize how very important it is for people to first learn about such processes in image form, because the minds of children work differently from those of adults. It is important to use images when we describe spiritual processes to children, so that they will then be able to hear about the physical process with reverence. You too can believe in the stork again, when you know that it symbolizes the descending soul. The children will sense the aura of your understandings of the truth, and your instruction will give wings to their creative fantasy. If we use imaginations, we can teach children anything, when they ask what life after death is like, you can show them the pupa of a butterfly and tell them that a soul leaving its body is like a butterfly leaving its pupa. Only we cannot see the soul. But your teaching will be convincing only if you yourself believe it when you say that the emergence of a butterfly exemplifies on a lower level what happens with the soul on a higher level. When images become alive in our hearts, as a result of re-immersing ourselves in an understanding of the spiritual world through occult science, our teaching will be transformed, and we will no longer give children dry, rational truths that coarsen their psyches. We must not use grotesque or comical images, however. We must acknowledge the crucial importance of what underlies these images. The third step of the Rosicrucian path is learning to read the occult script. This script is nothing like the one we learn in ordinary life, although many of our written letters are derived from occult images. Through learning to read the occult script, we find our way into the truly great forces at work in the world. Leaps between evolutionary stages are characteristic of these forces. Take a plant, for example. Each plant has seeds, and each seed is the point of departure for a new plant. But if you could examine the process carefully enough, you would realize that no material element of the old plant is carried over into the new. In reality, the old plant disintegrates completely on the material level and the new plant is built up anew. Only a movement process of sorts is transmitted from the old plant to the new. This phenomenon is similar to sealing wax and a seal. When you press the seal into the sealing wax, its form is transmitted, but not its substance. The same is true of any evolutionary process. Old matter disintegrates and simply provides a point of attachment for a new form to arise. This phenomenon is symbolized by two spirals that intertwine but do not connect. This sign also describes transitions such as the one at the end of the Atlantean culture. The Atlantean stage disappeared and a new stage emerged in Indian culture. I told you that around the year 800 the sun rose in the sign of Aries. 
Earlier still, the sun rose in Taurus, and before that, in Gemini and in Cancer. The Greco-Latin culture that held the seeds of our own corresponded to the time when the sun rose in the sign of Aries, while the previous cultural epochs of the Chaldeans, Assyrians, Babylonians, and Egyptians happened when the sun was in Taurus. Earlier still was the Persian culture, when the sun rose in Gemini, and ancient Indian culture developed when the sun was in Cancer. The symbol for cancer, or crab, which consists of two intertwined spirals, was first written during ancient Indian culture. Similarly, I could explain each sign of the zodiac in terms of its true meaning. These signs were derived from nature and are expressions of natural forces and laws. When we learn to read the characters of the occult script, we begin to transcend ourselves and delve into the hidden foundations of nature. Today, I have given you a brief sketch of the first three levels of the Rosicrucian path, study, imaginative cognition, and learning to read the occult script. Tomorrow, we will discuss the remaining levels, beginning with preparing the Philosopher's Stone. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Part 2 June 29th, 1907, Castle. Yesterday I described so-called Rosicrucian initiation up through the third stage, learning to read the occult script derived from natural laws. We also learned what the Rosicrucians meant by study and acquiring imaginative cognition. We will now move on to the fourth stage, or preparing the philosopher's stone. Please disregard anything you may have read previously about the philosopher's stone. Only in recent times has it become possible to report accurately on what the Rosicrucians meant when they named this fourth stage of their initiation method. Ever since Rosicrucianism was founded in 1459, the Philosopher's Stone has been the name used to describe a specific set of instructions on entering the higher worlds. You must realize that the Rosicrucian movement was kept secret and handled with the utmost care, until some of its secrets were betrayed and made public in the wrong way in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. It is clear from the different descriptions of Rosicrucian secrets that were published at that time that the writers had heard something about these secrets but failed to understand what they heard. They did pick up a few authentic words about the Philosopher's Stone, however. A major newspaper published a series of articles on an organization whose self assigned task was to prepare the Philosopher's Stone. One of these articles contains a statement that is comprehensible only to those who already know what is being described. It reads, Yes, the Philosopher's Stone does indeed exist. Most people know about it and most have even had it in their hands, but they do not know that it is not at all difficult to find. The meaning that was then attached to the Philosopher's Stone was that it gradually made people aware of the human being's immortal aspect and led them into higher worlds. 
It was then said that we realize that this aspect of our being cannot succumb to death. We acquire eternal life by possessing the Philosopher's Stone. By extension, it was said that the possessor of this stone would never die, although the actual meaning was that the Philosopher's Stone would teach us about the world in which we live after death. It was seen as an elixir of life. All this made the Philosopher's Stone extremely desirable. Anyone who knows the real facts of the matter must admit that these descriptions are indeed true in a strange way. However, those who do not know the secret are left none the wiser. Let me now tell you briefly what the Rosicrucians actually meant. To understand this, you must understand one very simple scientific phenomenon, namely the relationship between human beings and the plant kingdom. Human beings and other creatures with human-like respiration would never be able to exist without plants. Let's look at the process that takes place between us and plants. We breathe in air because we need its oxygen. Without oxygen, we would be unable to live. We inhale air, process the oxygen in our bodies, and exhale carbon dioxide, a carbon-oxygen compound. So you see, we constantly take in oxygen to maintain our bodies, and we create and breathe out carbon dioxide, a poison that would kill us. Thus, we are constantly filling our surroundings with a toxin. Now, what do plants do? In a certain aspect, they do the exact opposite. They take in carbon dioxide, retain the carbon, and give off the oxygen, which they cannot use. We give plants what they need, and the plants give us oxygen in return. The amount of oxygen plants give off after taking in carbon dioxide far outweighs the amount of oxygen they take in. So what do plants do with the carbon they retain? It is one of the substances they use to build up their own bodies. We make it possible, as it were, for plants to construct their carbonaceous bodies in the appropriate way. The anthracite we mine is the carbon from plants that died thousands of years ago. Plants provide the oxygen that we take in while we give the plants carbon dioxide. The plants keep the carbon and give the oxygen back to us in a miraculous cycle. This is the current state of affairs. Human beings are still evolving, however, and in future each human body will also have an organ that transforms carbon dioxide into oxygen and retains carbon for the body to use. This statement points to a future stage in human evolution, but in a different way than what I had described yesterday with regard to Rosicrucian esoteric schooling. In the future, the human body will be desire-free, but on a higher level than we find in plants. We will be able to build up our bodies as plants do, but on a higher level. The organ that is now the human heart will be transformed into an organ that does what plants do now. Today, the plant and human kingdoms are interdependent. The one could not exist without the other. If there were no plants, all oxygen breathers would soon die because plants provide oxygen. We cannot imagine ourselves existing without plants. What plants do outside us today will be done in the future by the organ that develops when the human heart is transformed into a voluntary muscle. We will spread our consciousness out over the plant kingdom and grow together with it, internalizing a function that plants now perform outside of us. At that point in time, we will also retain the carbon that we now exhale 
and will use it to build up our own bodies. We will become like plants, but on a higher level of consciousness. Ever since ancient times, esotericism has clothed the facts I have just recounted in the Golden Legend, one of the wonderful images presented to esoteric students and used to preserve truths for thousands of years. The Golden Legend goes something like this. On entering paradise for the first time, Seth, the son God gave Adam and Eve to replace the murdered Abel, discovered that the tree of knowledge and the tree of life had grown together, with their branches intertwining. At the bidding of his angelic guide, Seth took three seeds from this tree. He saved them, and when Adam died, placed the three seeds in Adam's mouth. A tree grew up out of Adam's grave, and to those who knew how to see it, the tree revealed in flaming letters the words, Eheye Asher Eheye, I am who was, who is, and will be. Seth took wood from the tree. Many things were made from it, including Moses' magical staff. The gate of Solomon's temple was made of wood from the offspring of this tree, and later, after experiencing various other destinies, it formed the cross on which the Redeemer hung. Thus, the legend associates the wood of the cross of on Golgotha with the tree that grew out of Adam's grave from the seeds of the tree of paradise. This legend conceals the same secret that I sketched for you today. The legend meant that in ancient times the human race had not yet sunk to the level of fleshly desire, but was chaste and pure like the plants extending their calluses to the sun. Then came the fall, and human flesh was filled with passion. But everything we once possessed in the state of innocence will be ours again when we have traveled the path of knowledge and created bodies that are as free of desire as human bodies were before we ate from the tree of knowledge, which, as you recall, was the source of the eye. Because we no longer have desire-free bodies, we have become red-blooded lung-breathers. The human form we know at present depends on respiration and circulation, which make possible the type of cognition we possess today. Now, let's shift our attention to the present-day human body and create an image of how oxygen flows in, stimulating the red blood that runs throughout the entire body like the branching of a tree, and how the blue blood then flows back, filled with carbon dioxide. We each contain two trees, the trees of red and blue blood. Without them, the human being could not support an eye. Our present form of cognition requires us to incorporate red blood, to which death is also linked, because we transform red blood into the blue blood that is saturated with carbon dioxide. That is why the esoteric teachers of the Old Testament said, Look at yourself and at the tree of red blood within you. If you had not received this tree, you would never have become a thinking being. You ate from the tree of knowledge, but at the same time you lost the ability to give yourself life from within. The former tree of life became the tree of death. In our present stage of evolution, our internal tree of blue blood is the tree of death. Initiates, however, can perceive the future stage in which human beings internalize the plant kingdom through the heart organ, which transforms blue blood back into red blood. At this stage, we will transform the tree of death into a tree of life, and human beings will become immortal. 
What we once were on a lower level, we will then be on a higher level. We will incorporate the process that exists today in plants. Thus, paradise is humankind's final stage of evolution. Seth's mission was to see the balancing of the two principles within the human being that will occur at the end of time. Thus, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge are intertwined in paradise. They will be found inside human beings only when we take refuge in the plant kingdom. But how do we learn to make the trees intertwine? By developing the three higher members of the human constitution. We have learned that the human being consists of the physical body, the ether body, the astral body, and the eye. We also learned that the eye works on the astral body to develop the first higher member, on the ether body to achieve the second, and on the physical body to realize the third. In the future, the human being will be sevenfold being who will incorporate the spirit self, the life spirit, and the spirit body. Having thus transformed our lower nature, we will take the tree of knowledge and the tree of life into ourselves. At the very outset of our evolution, we received the potential for the I as the prerequisite for developing the three higher members of our constitution. Seth took three seeds, and Adam, the first I being, made them grow into a tree. This tree contains the aspect of the human being that passes through all the various incarnations. Your I was present at a very low level of evolution in your first incarnation, and achieved ever higher levels in subsequent incarnations. The tree growing out of Adam's grave symbolizes the eternal aspect of the human being, which will achieve perfection at the end of the earth stage of evolution. We can achieve this degree of perfection only by uniting with the highest good that we encounter on the path to the spirit. Everything that has led humanity further along this path the Staff of Moses, the Temple of Solomon, and finally the Cross on Golgotha, helps us to bring the higher human trinity to full expression. The Cross on Golgotha pointed the way to the ultimate degree of human perfection. There is no more beautiful way of expressing this fact than the legend I have retold here. The Cross began as the seed placed in Adam's mouth, the seed that grew into the tree that yielded its wood to Seth. The legend presents our journey through all time. In the future, we will struggle to achieve the transformation of our own being and the ability to produce carbon for our own use, as plants do today. We too will learn to master the alchemy of plants. The alchemical preparation of the substance I have described is accomplished when candidates for Rosicrucian initiation follow specific instructions on how to regulate their respiratory processes. We can understand this only on the basis of the principle that constant dripping wears away stone. That is, it cannot happen quickly, but students of Rosicrucianism continue to work at it. Just as drops of water slowly wear a tiny hollow in the stone, the human body is progressively transformed at a similar pace as a result of regulating the breathing process. The instructions that Rosicrucian students must follow allow them to set out on the path toward preparing the I to acquire the ability to build up subsequent bodies in a different way. Their practice is related to the fact that phenomena 
which will appear only later in your physical surroundings, already exist in the spiritual world. The slow process of Rosicrucian instruction anticipates a future evolutionary stage, but already now its students learn to see this stage in the higher worlds. Thus, students of Rosicrucianism do two things. They work for the future of humanity, and they acquire for themselves the ability to see into the spiritual world, to see what will later descend into physical reality. At this point, you can understand something that the man who wrote the newspaper article did not, namely that the Philosopher's Stone is ordinary black carbon. The progress of humanity lies in learning to process carbon through our own inner strength. Today's coal is a precursor of the substance that will be most important for human beings of the future, although that future substance will look quite different. Remember that a brilliant diamond is also only carbon. This inner human development is what the Rosicrucian worldview calls preparing the philosopher's stone. This term conceals a process of human transformation and a challenge to work toward future evolutionary stages of humanity. All who work in this way work on behalf of the human bodies of the future, for the kind of bodies that souls will need in the future. This fourth tremendously profound stage of Rosicrucian schooling thus incorporates preparing the Philosopher's Stone into humanity's evolution. The fifth stage is the correspondence between microcosm and macrocosm. The complicated human body that exists today underwent a very specific evolution. In earlier lectures, I guided you through its Saturn, Sun, Moon, and Earth stages in the evolution of our Earth. During the Saturn stage, only the first traces of sensory organs were present, embedded in the great mass of Saturn-like crystals embedded in a mountain today. Your eyes were like quartz crystals in a mountain. On the sun, your most highly developed organs, all glands, covered the sun's surface. On the moon, the organs that now comprise your nervous system were spread out over the moon's surface. The moon had a nervous system, and individual animal humans were blessed with a nervous system for the first time. On earth, human beings received their skeletal system, for there was no mineral kingdom on the moon. As you see, constructing the human body was an elaborate process. What is now the human eye was spread out over the entire mass of Saturn. Before taking their place in the human body, organs existed first in the entire cosmos. Esoteric science can teach us how individual organs relate to the cosmos. It can tell us what corresponds to the human liver, spleen, heart, and so on in the world outside us, and what had to happen in the greater world so that these organs could be formed. The Rosicrucian epistemology provides methods of concentration that focus on our eyes, our ears, and enable us to acquire a clairvoyant view of these organs' development. I took you back to a time in the Atlantean evolutionary period when the ether body was still so far removed from the physical body that it was not yet linked to the point on the head above the root of the nose. We heard how the ether body then slipped inside the physical body so that the physical body acquired its present form. There is a method of concentration 
Its very specific formula is communicated only from person to person, which focuses our attention on this point of connection between the head and the corresponding part of the ether body. This meditative method makes it possible to perceive what the earth looked like at the time when this portion of the etheric head slipped inside the physical human head. Similar methods for each organ of the human microcosm teach us about the other macrocosmic forces that the great cosmic architects inserted into the human body. Under esoteric guidance, therefore, we can learn about the macrocosm, because everything out there in the cosmos corresponds to some organ in the microcosm. The human body is a highly complicated creation, but just as reading a telegram allows you to guess who sent the message, meditating on individual organs makes it possible to draw conclusions about their creators. By now we have already touched on the sixth stage, which is called immersing oneself in the macrocosm. By learning to recognize the relationship of your own microcosm to the macrocosm, you expand your knowledge to conclude the entire universe. This truth is concealed in the old injunction, Know thyself. A great deal of damage has been done, however, by theosophists who say that each individual encompasses all of God or all of the Most High, and that in order to understand the entire universe we simply need to look into ourselves. This type of brooding on oneself is utter nonsense. It teaches you only about the lower I that you already possess. It cannot teach you about anything you do not already have. True self-knowledge, which is also knowledge of the universe, is acquired only in the complicated way I described. Real theosophy cannot make the path to such knowledge so easy for people. Instead, it must tell us that we can learn about the most complicated of all beings only through quiet, serious contemplation. The only way to learn about the divine is to recognize it in the cosmos bit by bit. This process requires patience and persistence. Our understanding of the greater world grows quietly and slowly. Theosophy cannot provide a universal formula that will reveal all knowledge at once. It can only point out the path that leads to self-knowledge and thus also to knowledge of the cosmos and knowledge of the divine. The knowledge we acquire at this sixth stage of initiation is not dry and rational, it forges an intimate connection between ourselves and the greater world. Those who achieve this knowledge are intimately related to everything in the world in a way that modern human beings know only in the mysterious relationship of love between man and woman, which is based on a secret recognition of the being of the other person. Looking at the macrocosm through such a relationship, you not only understand but also feel connected with all beings, just as lovers feel connected. You have an intimate, loving relationship to each plant and stone, to all the beings of the world. Our love becomes specialized with regard to each being, which then gives us information it ceased to provide when we descended to our modern forms of cognition. Animals eat what is good for them and leave what is harmful. They have a sympathetic relationship to some foods and an antipathetic relationship to others. To develop modern cognition, we humans had to relinquish such direct relationships, but in future, we will regain them on a higher level. How do modern esotericists know that a plant's flower affects human beings differently than its root? How do they know 
that the effect of an ordinary root is different from that of a carrot. They know because things speak to them just as they also speak to animals. At lower levels, such intimate relationships are incompatible with rational consciousness, but at the highest levels we will enter into such relationships consciously. Once we have reached this stage, the seventh stage sets in as a natural consequence. As you may have deduced, this stage involves an understanding of feelings and emotional impressions. There is nothing here that will not touch your heart vividly, so it would be wrong to distinguish between ideational, intellectual, and spiritual knowledge. The intention of esotericists is not to move you or to tell you all kinds of beautiful things, but simply to recount the facts of the spiritual world, and they would consider it shameless to appeal directly to your feelings. But they know that the facts speak for themselves and that the facts alone should arouse feelings. For Rosicrucians, therefore, the personality of the teacher is not an issue. The teachings have nothing to do with the person. Teachers are there simply to allow the facts to speak to others. The more esoteric teachers allow themselves to serve simply as a means of expression for the perspectives of the higher world, the more correctly they speak. Anyone who still has personal beliefs and opinions and views is not suited to be an esoteric teacher, because if feelings, rather than objectivity, were the deciding factor, you might say that that two times two is five. Thus, you see how various aspects of inner development gradually allow Rosicrucians to rise to knowledge of the higher worlds. Guidance is necessary for this development, but it always appears at the right time, if you seek it seriously. It is not correct to say that such personal guidance always recommends completing these seven stages sequentially. The teacher selects aspects that are especially suitable for each student. I also wanted to describe the preparatory levels, but let me just select two examples to demonstrate the need to develop other qualities before proceeding to the more rigorous exercises. Concentration, or focusing our thinking, is one ability we need to practice from the very beginning. Just consider how your thoughts dance around from morning till night. They come from all directions and tear you away with them. As a student of Rosicrucianism, you must set aside a time when you master your thoughts and focus on a single thought that is as uninteresting as possible. You will notice that this has a tremendously beneficial effect. How long it takes is not important, but it does require energy, patience, and persistence. The other quality is what we call positivity, an attitude toward life that is best characterized by a Persian legend about Christ Jesus. Once, when Christ Jesus was walking along a road with his disciples, they came upon a dead dog by the side of the road. The dog was already in a very advanced stage of decay, and the disciples, whose attitudes were not as highly developed as those of Christ Jesus, turned away from the ugly sight. Only the Christ Jesus stopped to look at the dog carefully and said, What beautiful teeth the animal has. Every ugly thing we encounter contains an element of beauty, every untruth a kernel of truth, and every evil a grain of goodness. This does not mean that we must become absolutely uncritical. Positivity is often interpreted to mean that we can no longer dislike anything, but in fact it simply means that there is always a kernel of beauty 
in the ugly, and a bit of good in every example of evil. This attitude encourages the soul's higher forces and is part of the preparation for esoteric schooling. I also wanted to give you an idea of the spirit of Gnostic Christian esoteric schooling. The deepest, truest Christianity is found in Rosicrucian schooling, which allows you to be a Christian in the truest sense of the word, in spite of all the obstacles of modern life. It was more possible to be a Christian in the old style as long as there was more opportunity to withdraw from the world, before we became so imbued with the scientific ideas that make it difficult to accept Christianity in its original form. Our greatest thinkers say that they can no longer reconcile such thoughts with Christianity. While it is true that the spiritual world is omnipresent, it is also true that the thought forms of our materialistic age are active in us and constantly leave their mark on us. If we are conscientious, we are forced to realize that we need some means of maintaining ourselves in the face of all these ideas storming in upon us. Occult science provides this means. Those who reject it, who refuse to make it their own, are egoists. Proponents of occult science feel that it is up to them to implement the intentions of medieval theosophy. Occult science, however, can be grasped by people familiar with all the justified counter-arguments of natural science. In modern Rosicrucian theosophy, anyone will be able to find a path that leads to understanding the greater world, to peace of soul, and to certainty of life. Rosicrucian theosophy is not merely theoretical knowledge that is subject to arguments and counter-arguments. This type of knowledge must find its way into our entire culture. Well, another interesting lecture by Rudolf Steiner. I find his uh, understanding or, or theosophical view of how we evolved along with the planets or following a sequence of the planets very interesting. I've always found that. It's like channeled knowledge, except the kind of channeled knowledge Steiner gives is, is less um, subjective in that it's, it's in dialogue with the stage of development of, of science around him in, in his environment. So in 1907, you can get a good sense of where his spiritual thinking was at coming out of theosophy and, and having studied the Western esoteric tradition in depth and been trained by many people, including the famous uh, Alois Mylander, who was illiterate but a Rosicrucian teacher and allegedly the reincarnation of Christian Rosenkreutz, who initiated Steiner and taught many people. This is the story. But his tendency to relate our understanding and, and gain spiritual wisdom by observing the natural world is what I've always loved the most, is, is by going into nature and having this very direct connection with it, uh, as well as developing the spiritual senses from concentration and imagination and focus to to abstract and sense things on a spir purely spiritual thought level. So you're, and we see this in a lot of our exercises, from meditations on tarot to path working to evocation. Actually, we see this the same thing in in those contemplative mysteries. We we have a sensation from a thing. I discussed this in my original series on Steiner and his outline of occult philosophy last year. Um, you get an impression, like think about the meditation on a rock, and then you get an impression from that rock. 
that's like the first stage of the imaginative sensing. And then the second stage is then you, you remember that experience you had of that meditation on that rock and you meditate on that experience, then extracting it and, and raising it in senses to a beyond um, rational, super rational relationship. And that's a purely spiritual relationship or a higher sense, the übersinnliche uh, relationship. And that's very interesting. That's one of my favorite parts about the anthroposophical interpretation of these things. But when he talks about the, the, the legends and the myths and the grail and stuff, a lot of that stuff, of course, has been taught by other spiritual teachers to him. But, but a large amount of it is, is, from one point of view, fabricated, from another point of view, channeled or intuited. And that is one of the most interesting things. But the techniques and the method of development is very parallel to the, the practical teachings of a lot of these traditions, especially the ones that I've, I've learned. And the same development is going on through practicing those techniques. Of course, his lectures were done mostly to public audience. And so he's trying to give them a very easy introductions to these things. And that's really fascinating to see as well. So he's outlandish and he's uh, insightful. It's a, he's a mixed bag, as, as always, but I, I find a lot of beauty in some of his insights and a lot of insights in, insight in a lot of his insights. So that's why I've always uh, continued to read him despite some of the more uh, outlandish things, but each to their own. And uh, who are we to judge the predictions that we might be using carbon one day to make our own bodies or that carbon is the philosopher's stone which i was excited to share with you all because that's the uh anthroposophical rosicrucian interpretation of that um the poems sometimes don't come across like the the ladybug which i believe in german is marienkäfer i believe so one of you german listeners will have to confirm that for me i'm not going to check but i believe that's what it is als ich in wien war in Brünnem Gebirge, als ich in die Steineschule war, wir hatten die Marienkäfer-Café jede Tag gegangen zu messen. So that was always good times at the, the Marienkäfer, which I believe is Ladybug. Thanks for listening. Go to magicwithoutfears.com to subscribe or donate and help me keep going and, and sharing all the stuff with you. We got an exciting roundtable coming together for next month, focused on Materia Magica and with some wonderful guests. And uh, yeah, if you want to do an interview yourself with me just go to magicwithoutfears.com and uh, fill out the form there i have a bunch of cool things coming along with uh, some big people that have taken me longer to prepare uh, for than than i expected also sometimes i have to restart my computer like 20 times for this new mic to connect which is a issue with the old computer so um if things have slowed down a bit don't worry they'll get back up to speed when uh, i <laughs> master slowly these technologies peace and have a wonderful day Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. 
That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk